Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hicks, a law student at the University of Toronto. You're listening to The JCR, a Massey podcast, where people and ideas intersect. I'm joined by two of my fellow junior fellows. Hi, I'm Robbie Steele. I am a PhD student in English um, at the University of Toronto, and I'm also uh, an avid theatre goer. Hi, I'm uh, Zahida. I'm a graduate student in adult education and also a playwright. This is a conversation about theatre, our experiences and our expectations as theatre goers and theatre makers. In this episode, the second installment of Curtain Call, we discuss collaboration touching on processes behind the scenes. Specifically, Zahida and I talk about our experience workshopping new plays and development, as well as the working of images and movement together on the stage, scope and scale, and talking about the process of taking scripts from brain to page to stage. Throughout the episode, in addition to our own experience as artists, we refer to a play called Fall on Your Knees, a two-part production created by the National Arts Centre, Vita Brevis, Canadian Stage, Grand Theatre, and Neptune Theatre. This was an unprecedented Canadian theatre collaboration. Fall on Your Knees is an East Coast story of truly epic proportions. It is intergenerational, multicultural, and six hours long if you see both parts. It was co-created and written by Hannah Moscovich and co-created and directed by Elisa Palmer. Zahida, Robbie, and I saw part one of the premiere production at Canadian Stage in February of 2023. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. A couple of things stood out to us. One, the scale of the whole production. And then also, I think we were all struck by the images that were created on stage. So we're going to use Fall on Your Knees as a bit of a launching pad for a discussion about both of those things one sort of practical and the other uh a little more artsy yeah well why don't we just talk about first impressions like you walked into the space uh what what were you thinking it was a larger scale production than i'm used to seeing and um but at the same time like the script um, and the play required that. Uh, I think for me, I similarly was was struck by the sort of scale of it. And it was also my first time at the Canadian stage and the theatre. Uh, but what I was sort of noticing was, I mean, what struck me first was the, the set um, and set design, which we, and we'll talk about later. Um, but it was sort of interesting to see um, this, this play that is so centrally um, about the early 20th century and sort of following this family and I think you get an impression um, immediately walking in this like oh this is partly not only about this family but this is also sort of a discussion about uh, the coming of age of Canada and uh, how that fit with different identity groups and people coming in to, to, to form it and it was such an interesting um, I think you, you see this sort of like um, Cape Breton scene um, opening the play and it was really sort of striking in that way. Yeah, the scale of the thing, both in terms of production and in terms of what we're seeing on the stage, I think it was necessary to tell such a large story. I mean, we saw 
so many different characters their entire lives in a lot of cases. So maybe these two ideas that we're going to talk about today are related in that way, you know, the scope of the thing. Zahida, would you tell us a little bit about the process of writing your play, The Wrong Bashir? Um, because it, thinking about uh, the scale of this production, you know, five different Canadian theatre companies, how, how long it took for them to bring this to the stage, that's the case for almost every play that you ever see produced. And, um, you know, we're fortunate to have you in the room right now to kind of talk about that on a personal level. Sure. I mean, for the play that I wrote that just premiered in Vancouver, which was around Bashir, it took five years. And I remember I was telling uh, Carmen Aguirre, my mentor, I said, yeah, it's taking very long. And she's been in the business for so long. And she's like, that's actually very fast. There's many reasons for that. I think, you know, as the time went on, I kind of realized why that was so necessary. And as the years went on, I was so happy that it didn't go on in 2018 when I felt it was ready. <laughs> And should be up, and um, and so there's reasons for that. Just on the development side, um, especially script-wise, and um, especially if you are a new playwright. I mean, Anne Marie McDonald has written many, um, but even even so, I think for even playwrights that have produced several times, it often takes them a long time. Even when you are used to the craft. Um, to see how it's working on stage. And so when you first start writing a play, there'll be several, um, one of the nice things about theater, which is different than other forms, is that you'll have readings with different companies where they'll take the script as is, and often it's not ready, and you feel kind of like, oh my gosh, this is not ready. I know there's things to fix, as Liz, I think you were mentioning too, and when you're workshopping your things. and. Um, and except they put it in front of an audience and the audience will give you feedback and just from being in the in the room as the playwright you can feel what's working and what isn't and when you hear the story read by actors from start to finish you really get an idea of like where the play needs to go next um, and you're with your collaborators so they're also uh, doing that, but so that's from the other that's from like the script development side. I think also for larger plays like this There's so many partnerships more that we're seeing in Canadian theater. We're bringing a play of such a large scale because of I Mean it's always been costly, but now it's I think it's even harder for a company to bring it on its own so yeah, this this play that we saw had um, so many companies behind it and lots of plays that are premiering will have like a rolling premiere where several companies are are supporting it, um, and I think the the last thing also about new play development is that, which I didn't realize when I was uh, first writing, is that it's also a really it's kind of a risk for for companies. I don't think this one would have been because the novel is so um, cherished and well known, but um, usually like a company will say sorry, like we don't. We can't do so many premieres unless you're a small company like Tarragon that is able to do it and has a faithful um, audience base. Otherwise, it, um, you need, um, like companies have told me, like, we need to do Mamma Mia, we need to do Chekhov, we need to do enough of that so that we know that those seats will be filled. And then with new play development, you never really know how it's going to go. Like, you might get an audience, but on often that's just for the art 
itself and they're okay with doing that, but they can't do that with all the plays. Um, so I think this, this applies a little bit less to this situation, but uh, it's also a large part of new play development. Those practical concerns about like bums and seats mm -hmm. and uh, if we have enough money to do this play, it's funny and sometimes unfortunate how that affects the actual writing of the play because maybe you want to have 12 characters in your play. You're going to have producers and dramaturges say to you, uh, you know, you should consider if this play is really producible because who has the money to hire 12 actors right now? Very few companies. <laughs> they had to get together, <laughs> the five of them, <laughs> you know, in the case of Fall on Your Knees. Uh, and there's a play that I've been writing for a long time now that has, I use 12 characters and as, as an example because that's what I'm looking at. And, you know, I had an artistic director say, like, I love this idea, but, you know, I would never be able to produce this. Would you consider you know, trying to get this down to under eight actors. But it's like the play doesn't have 12 characters. It has 12 actors and like 50 or 60 characters. So I'm like, well, it's kind of a different play then, isn't it? If I make it eight actors, then, you know? So then it's like artistically, you're kind of bound by the practical concerns of money and, uh, and time. And I think that that's something that maybe not everyone's thinking about when they're sitting in the audience and seeing the finished product, like what it right. took to get there. That's such an interesting um, point about the sort of like constraints um, that are like put on to these artistic productions. Um, but something both of you mentioned that I'm kind of really interested as someone who is not a playwright is um, the sort of aspect of like collaboration. Because um, you both are mentioning that um, and I mean, in, on Fall on Your Knees, it's this huge collaboration between these different theater companies, um, and it's this epic scale. But like, it seems to, it strikes me that um, you were both saying that like collaboration is such a big process um, or a part of your own process. Um, and I wondered like if you had any thoughts about like how collaboration works, how it informs your work, um, and like how that happens, like as a as a, like a behind the stage people. <laughs> I have a lot to say about this topic. I'm very uh, into developing my own like theory of collaboration and uh, all of the steps that you need to take to make people feel uh, welcome in a room. And it's like such, let me give you an example. So I did this uh, class, I guess, or kind of like a workshop with uh, Jillian Kylie and Robert Chafe, and they are a playwright-director duo. They started uh, the company Artistic Fraud in Newfoundland, and Jillian was the AD at the NAC for 10 years, So, and Robert is a Governor General for Drama award-winning playwright. They're very successful. So uh, and they've been collaborators for, you know, I don't know, over 20 years at least. And so I did this class where they uh, had playwright and director duos come in and sort of work through an idea from scratch so that the, uh, the director's brain was informing the playwright and vice versa from the very seed of the thing. And it was just an exercise, but I ended up, you know, going on to keep working on the play after. And I think that that opportunity made me more conscious of my own artistic practice and how important it is for me to collaborate well. I guess like I'm so interested in because I think it's easy to think about um, playwriting as this sort of 
um, as, as sort of we have this conception of like authorship and playwriting um, as this sort of solitary practice mm-hmm. as something that you know you go off to your cabin in the woods for a weekend retreat and you pump out this <laughs> this like <laughs> artistic genius play but that's sort of like this um, soul authorship idea but I w- I'm sort of interested in like how um, how true that is in your experience like is is it um, like I, I get the sense from both of you that it's it's much less of this um, sort of isolated soul authorship experience and much more about the, the sort of development being in working it through with other people, working it um, through in your mind and then sort of like um, uh, through the process of readings and stuff. So I, I'm just sort of interested in how you how you think about like like playwriting in collaboration. Unfortunately, like I think you do still spend a lot of time alone when you're just writing the drafts and things, but the great thing about playwriting is that you have a dramaturge, which I think is, the way that people explain it is like, oh, it's like an editor when you're working on fiction, but it's really, it's quite different because with a dramaturge, you talk aloud out, out loud, um, and it's a really, um, it's a really can be a really great collaboration because you're not sending a draft and then waiting for margin notes. Like a lot of times you're discovering things together and their practice as a dramaturge is actually to ask questions and they don't actually make line edits. Like that's um, that's something that's different about plays. They'll, they don't really suggest word edits, but they'll ask like, what's happening here? Um, uh, if they, you know, think they're trying to figure out like, is this section actually needed? And they'll keep asking questions if you're like, oh no, this is about that. And then they said, oh, okay, well that's not what's on the page. Um, so yeah, I think this, um, the process of dramaturgy, sometimes, yeah, they do just kind of listen to you talk out loud. Some people have described it as like therapy kind of, but for the script. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. And so um, I think, I mean, it's still definitely you spend a lot of time then back at the computer making those edits. The actors also give you mm-hmm. notes. and um, But it is a different genre that way that you can really, um, that a lot of people can contribute to it yeah and all of that is before the script is even finished and so you can only imagine how many people get involved after you know and I think it's something frustrating for playwrights a lot of the time because you know you have this piece that you've been crafting and you've been taking notes from so many people and then a director gets it in their hands and they're like crossing out stage directions and you know you'd hope that they don't do that but the truth is they do and uh (laughs) yeah so the director interprets your words the actors interpret your words and then the audience interprets the image that the directors and the actors interpreted from you so it's so it's more collaborative than like anything else that i can think of Really. Absolutely, and I think that's why like different productions can change so much. Like you could have the exact same script and a totally different production or a totally different feeling because of just who's involved and what happens with it when it's a different production. Right, and <laughs> I mean even on like it seems like on a night to night basis, like the collaboration between the actors and stage and between the actors and the audience, like it's going to create a different, um, like a different play each night, mm-hmm. which is. Yeah, your question also made me think about the role of the workshop actor, which is one of the most fun things you can do as an actor, in my opinion, because you get to sometimes 
influence the way that a story is told. Uh, but it's also a very delicate thing. And like having had the opportunity to be on both sides of the coin, uh, I've been a workshop actor more than I've been a playwright in workshop scenarios. But you know, when you're the playwright, the dramaturg is whispering to you like, yeah, don't listen to that. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, no, just, we're just going to let them like tell their little life story that they thought of. But when you're the actor, you're like, this reminded me of this thing that happened to me. And, and you know, it's, it's a very delicate thing. Uh, and yeah, you need to, if you're an actor in a workshop, I think uh, you can feel like uh, everything you say is really important or you want to offer suggestions or things like that. But part of being a good collaborator, to bring it back to your question, is knowing as an actor that you are not writing the play. And so most of the time a dramaturg will say at the beginning of the workshop, like, we're not looking for suggestions. Unless they are. You know, sometimes... Sometimes right. that's the case, but most of the time, like, don't try to write the playwright's play for them. And something that a mentor of mine said in a workshop recently is don't, uh, don't take away the moment of discovery for the playwright, because if you offer a suggestion and it's actually a good suggestion, now that playwright kind of like <laughs> owes that moment to you in this strange way. It's a very interesting environment because it's collaboration and there's suggestions coming, but ultimately it's the playwright's play, so it's delicate. You need a good dramaturge to lead a room. Absolutely. This is fascinating. I've never, <laughs> never known about any of these dynamics. I've just been a playgoer. Yeah. <laughs> like, ooh, having fun. <laughs> and that's why it takes so long. That's why, yeah, definitely. And like a dramaturge as well. And then like you were saying, like workshop actors that are... Um, you know, not wanting to write the play necessarily, but also like invested enough, mm -hmm. you know, like I find it quite generous what workshop actors do where they're like invested enough to want to make the play better and kind of be on the team mm -hmm. of it. And then it's, ex it's usually exciting if they go all the way from workshop to the um, play because then they know which lines were cut out and then that's like in their backstory still, you know, <laughs> so yeah. I would love to hear from you, Robbie, about let me let me twist this a little and get yeah. your opinion on something that happened in Fall on Your Knees, mm. which is we saw the entire cast sitting on stage uh, right from the beginning of the play. And this is a trend I've been seeing in Canadian theater, this sort of even like musicians on stage, uh, you know, everybody sitting on chairs and then they kind of become different things. Uh, so you kind of get to see the behind the scenes collaboration happen right in front of you. Now, I'm not sure if I always love that, that sort of pared down behind the curtain look, but I think it worked in Fall on Your Knees. So I guess maybe my question for you, Robbie, mm -hmm. is was there anything that struck you about Fall on Your Knees in terms of like witnessing that collaboration? Yeah, okay, yeah, definitely. So I think it was super, um, I love the image that you reminded me of, of the actors on stage um, all from the beginning of the play. And that I think that worked so well, partly because it was telling this intergenerational story. And it was telling this, um, I mean, the the, um, uh, the first part of the play is, is subtitled um, Family Tree. And it's, it's interesting in the way that um, it's sort of messing with temporality. So you have... Um, all of these um, characters on stage from the beginning 
um, as though it's like foregrounding this interconnected intergenerational story. You, you sort of see the collaboration between the generations and how this sort of like generational trauma is sort of going to be worked through even from before the first scene, right? It's so, it's such an interesting image and like the way that they were sort of able to like weave these little moments in as they were sort of sitting on stage was so interesting in a way that was like almost foreshadowing um, but also sort of um, telling this it, I, I think it was really doing this interesting job of like interlinking these um, uh, generations and family members and talking about that um, generational trauma that's such an interesting observation I don't think I really thought about that um, like getting to see all of the actors is like getting to see all of the generations of people yeah yeah and you know they a lot of the times plays will try to hide uh the moving of set pieces or, you know, like you'll go to black in between scenes and the lights will come up and things will be different. But we saw them doing everything and I thought that it really worked for this type of play, kind of for that reason, I think. It it was all so intertwined. And they weren't hiding the, like, messiness in a way that I think is indicative of how they're thinking about this family story. Um, Mm -hmm. And you sort of don't get to have these smooth transitions, just like the characters don't get to have these smooth transitions either in their lives. On that note, I'm super interested to ask you both about your thoughts on um, the set more generally, because uh, there was su- some very like striking um, set pieces and interactions with the set. And I wonder if you had any um, thoughts on that more broadly. Because the play was so long, there are so many different things I'm sure I'm forgetting. One of the things that stands out to me in my memory is after intermission, they took two chairs and raised them uh, so they were suspended. You know, we were in a really big space, so I don't even know how many feet, 25 feet in the air. And there was also a mining lantern hung with the chairs. Now, I'm still not sure (laughs) exactly what uh, or who those chairs represented uh, because there were, I think there were three notable deaths in Act One. Uh, I'm not sure who they were, but that the emptiness of those chairs hanging and they were sort of in precarious positions. You know, it wasn't like a perfectly flat chair. They were sort of hung sideways and it was like a constant reminder of this grief hanging over the family for the second half of the play so like just when you think you've forgotten about Kathleen she's there there's a a physical reminder on the stage of the people who came before that have now left the characters on stage and they're the haunted by their presence so having that actual physical set piece hanging like that when it used to be on the ground grounded and sometimes you'd forget about it and then you'd look up and like they were still there and so you know we didn't get to see part two yet but i wonder if there's more of that in part two that's such an interesting point um again back to like thinking about like time in the play temporality because it's sort of this constant reminder of the presence of the past right this sort of um lingering um grief this lingering trauma that is um structuring this family's life it's um um and thinking about like audience reaction to that like having that um reminder is sort of keeping you both 
in the present sort of timeline of the play, but also um, continually reminded of um, like Act One and the sort of the structuring traumas that are um, key to the like plot. Similarly, like I think the piano that reminds me of the piano that that was there the whole time. Like other set pieces leave, and you start with the whole cast, and then there's the warning at the very beginning. So it's not exactly a spoiler alert that everyone dies, um, and then you know characters leave, but the piano is there the whole time, and it also kind of starts some of the intergenerational trauma that we see in the play because the the father character is a piano teacher, and that kind of separates the first family off. Um, but yeah, that was, I'm, I'm so curious if that piano would still be in the second part of, you know, the, the next three hours of the play, because I didn't realize until now when we started talking about it, like just how, um, kind of like, not a character exactly, but just how, what a presence it had on stage. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like thinking about the piano as its own character, I think that's um, so astute, partly because another key set design was they had these series of huge strings that were like these oversized strings that were were um, the entire um, height of the set uh, it took me a minute to realize like oh those are representing piano strings and it's as though your the entire set is enclosed within this piano both reminding us of this sort of enclosure of this family the sort of secrets and tensions that are happening within it but also how that is so structured by music as a form of oppression, a form of tension, a form of beauty also um, throughout these characters' lives. And there's um, points when the the actors are transitioning in and out of scenes where they'll sort of slowly strum the piano strings. It's such an interesting set feature that is, is reminiscent of like this enclosure and this constraint on the family. And it allowed for this beautiful theatrical device as well where the father had this sort of somber song that he loved to play he wanted his children to play and then near the end of the play Frances goes over and she just won't stop playing it and I'm trying to remember the details I think the father is still there and I think she's kind of like trying to drive him crazy with it you know and so for us, well, for me at least, I've kind of felt like every time I heard that song, it gave me a certain feeling. So I think they used that piano for everything it was worth. <laughs> yeah. It really was this fulcrum piece, like in the in the yeah. play. <laughs> well, we've been talking a lot about like setting the stage of a play, um, both in its sort of production history, thinking about how these um, modes of collaboration and playwriting and revision are working sort of behind the scenes um and then we had this we had these thoughts about both how like this this stage setting itself is sort of this structuring principle i was trying to tie together no i think you're doing good okay i think what you're saying about um how we started our conversation with like how playwriting is such a collaborative process and as an audience member you wouldn't necessarily always think that there's so many collaborators involved in that yes. a lot of like theater reaches you on a subconscious level like a lot like the chairs and the set and everything um but you wouldn't necessarily clock that oh that's like that's the hard work of a sound designer that's the hard work of a set person you know so maybe that is like the behind the scenes of collaborators that you don't see yeah it's sort of like interesting to think about um sort of collaboration in real time 
um, during the play itself and how that's structured by all these forms of collaboration that are um, antecedents to the sort of play's production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Fall on Your Knees is such a great example of all of those things because of its the history of how it got to the stage, how large the scale of the production is, and also the way that they did it artistically, like the set design and the direction they laid it all bare. I think it was cohesive in that way. You've been listening to The JCR, a Massey podcast. I'm Elizabeth Hicks. Joined by Robbie Steele and Zahida Ramtala. Until next time, thanks for joining the discussion.